Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is The Ruck from The Times and The Sunday Times. Thanks once again for joining us and welcome back. So we're down to the final eight. Five weeks of action and the quarterfinal lineup has been confirmed. Ireland booked their progression through Pool B along with South Africa by beating Scotland. New Zealand and France progressed with wins over the final round. And England and Wales topped Pools C and D, Argentina and Fiji joining them in the quarterfinals. I'm Alfie Reynolds and I'm joined by Will Kelleher and Alex Lowe from what looks like, over this Zoom call we're sat on, a sunny Marseille. How are you, boys? We're good. It's very loud, Marseille. We've got um, police sirens going off. We've got car alarms going off. We're we're definitely back down in a slightly more chaotic city here. It's edgy. I like it, Marseille. Um, No, we're good. We're back down. Quarterfinal week uh, begins and... For about 15 minutes last night, we thought we were going to get an England-Australia quarterfinal. Oh, Alfie, I was imagining, um, I don't know how many of our listeners are wrestling fans, but that image of The Undertaker coming out of the coffin <laughs> with Eddie Jones. So I was having to write a piece on that game last night, and I was trying to construct a, a possible scenario that England play Australia. And I think I was going to write it along the lines of they hadn't just got their flight home, but they were eyeing up the red wine in the Qantas lounge, the Australians, and then suddenly, oh, hang on, yeah. the back. It would have been ridiculous. That, I was it? I was by the old port watching it on a screen. Uh, it was great. And it was one of those occasions where I think you'd say Portugal and Fiji have been everyone's favourite other teams. And then suddenly they're up against each other and no one quite knows who they want to win until Portugal get ahead. And then it's pretty clear that everyone wants Portugal to win. And in about 10 minutes into the second half, suddenly realise that I might have to rewrite everything that I'd written through the day because... <laughs> a piece kind of looking at England was going to be massively overtaken if suddenly they end up playing Australia, playing Australia and it's England v Aussie, it's Eddie v Steve Borthwick, it's what does Bill Sweeney think about all this? Like, <laughs> so I was there sitting with my phone out, kind of desperately tapping away uh, on, a, on a potential rewrite just in case the uh, Portugal kept their lead. And obviously they, they they won, but Fiji rather stumbled into the yeah. into the quarters. So now we have the the Twickenham rematch. And as As I have been to Fiji last week to preemptively get a piece in the can for this week. I was definitely not supporting Portugal at the end of that game. <laughs> I was like, I've got a nice interview with Simon Raul Louis that hopefully gets used this week and I don't want to put it on a big spike. So like, <laughs> come on, Fiji. <laughs> well, I was going to ask both of you as well, what what would you have preferred in terms of the build-up this week heading into a quarterfinal? As you've just said, Alex, it could have been Eddie against his old foes, Borthwick against Eddie as well or obviously everyone's second favorite team a great story at this world cup fiji's first quarter final since 07 um i mean both would have been good but i was kind of intrigued as to what would have been better from both yeah of I, I i still like the fact fiji are here um i think it's really good for the for the tournament that they're here but we were talking about what what kind of eddie we would we would all get so i did put in the piece that was never needed but it always feels like he's one of those guys who can be in the stickiest situation and come up smelling of roses every single time. And for 10 minutes, it did feel like that was, that was going to happen. He, I suspect he would have gone on the front foot if he'd been in here this week. He would have seen Borthwick's inability to think on his feet, 
Gorthick's very good at a lot of things, but he's not an orator. Certainly in public, he he can't. He he would he'd have withdrawn from any kind of conflict, and I think Eddie would have gone for him. And I wouldn't be surprised if Eddie had put himself up um, two or three times in the week and had properly gone after England and gone after Bill Sweeney and gone after the RFU. And got and tried to get into Borthwick's head. Yeah, totally. I mean, but it would have been a spicy week if Eddie'd been here for sure. We're very familiar with the, with England Australia games. There's a sense of if Fiji. We've talked maybe even on the pod, and it's a real generalisation. But the idea that Fiji are brilliant at doing the hard things, but really struggle with the easy things, and that's on the field in a game. But that's also how they played their rugby in the last couple of months. And they beat England. They should have beaten Wales by right at the end. And they beat Australia, and then they rather stumbled against Georgia, and and then they lost to Portugal. So you know, I saw Dan Leo from you know he's of Samoan heritage, but he he represents Pacific Island players, and he's like, just wonder about the tournament fatigue settling in. Like, are they getting a bit antsy? We don't quite know what Fiji will rock up. I mean, if they if the Fiji that played Wales, Australia, and England turn up, and he, and the England that played Samoa turn up. Like England are going to struggle, mm. but if they're slightly lost their heads, like yes, like they did against Portugal, chucking it around, which is what they love to do, and they are so good at it, then I think England will probably have to pick them off. Yeah, well, maybe when we properly chat about England and preview that quarter final, it's something we can get into. I do wonder what that Fiji result against Portugal does to change the build-up, though, in terms of people's perceptions of who the favourites are and that sort of thing. But we can get into that later on on the podcast. Let's um. Just give another word on Portugal. Knocked out of the World Cup, but a draw against Georgia, a victory over Fiji. They pushed Wales. They pushed the Wallabies. I mean, they have been one of the success stories of this whole tournament, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, they've been they've been everyone's favourite team now. I think, you know, I think Fiji people have loved watching Fiji, but Portugal have been my favourite team at, at this World Cup. And and when you bear in mind how they qualified with a last minute penalty to draw with the United States and knock out the USA and, and, and qualify that way. We we spoke to Thomas Appleton on on the ruck, their, their captain. Two days later, he was back in Lisbon at work as a as a dental surgeon. And then he, he came on the ruck from from the hospital in Lisbon. It was they just played with a spirit that that we can all buy into. And I got a big regret from last night, which is I had to file a, a team of the pool stages and it contained one Portuguese player, the fullback. Scrum half, I was down to Samuel Marquez or the blonde-haired Samoan scrum half, and I just nudged it to the Samoan and then sat there watching Portugal and was like, man, what a game he had, Samuel Marquez. He was the guy who kicked the the winning penalty against the USA or the the, penalty, the qualification penalty. He kicked the winning conversion last night. We won't, we won't see them on this kind of stage again until unless they qualify for the next World Cup. Yeah, I would suggest Portugal are going to be featuring quite heavily in the God or Goddess of the Week on the on the on on the show this week. I just wonder as as well before you come in on this, Will of Portugal of how important they've been for this World Cup, and then it kind of feels like a World Cup where we've been every round. I've been thinking I want an upset, and we've had a lot of one sided games. And again, this weekend, okay, Samoa played their part in terms of that match against England being closer than people expected. But again, it's Portugal that have provided us with something we maybe weren't expecting. A lot of these pool stages have been pretty one dimensional and one sided. Yeah, you mentioned right at the top of the show that five weeks into the World Cup, and I was sort of thinking, wow, it's been five weeks, isn't it? it in some ways, it feels like it's been five seconds, but the other time, it feels like it's been five years out in front. Yeah. Like the pool stage is taking a long time to get sorted out. And like speaking to people watching at home, friends and family, they're almost looking forward to this weekend more than they have done all the others because it's like, yeah, okay, like the pool stage, we just there's been a couple of good games, there's been a couple of big peaks. But as you say, Alfie, like some of the ones where we might have expected an upset, there haven't been one, or Italy were terrible and got hit for 96 against New Zealand and 70-odd against France. There's been some massive blowouts and more more than there have been in previous World Cups too. And then you do get some upsets and they're sort of like, for neutral perspective, the wrong upset because, as we've been saying, Fiji's everyone's sort of favourite second team and then they go and lose to everyone's other favourite second team. But no, the Portuguese are amazing and we obviously were at the England-Samoa game and I was asking questions um, of Salala Mapasua there about what the future holds for these emerging teams with their fixtures. And they basically just don't know. They don't know whether they're next going to play what we'd usually call the, the tier one sides 
Tonga the same when they had their victory over Romania and Lille as well. Portugal, similar. They'll have the Rugby Europe Championship again, but with the new restructuring of the global game that's going to come in in 2026, this Nations Cup, Nations Championship, World League, whatever you want to call it, all these guys are going to be locked out. And, and we keep being told that there'll be crossover fixtures between what will be the top tier, the elite division and the challenger division. But I just can't see when they're going to happen or how they're going to structure it that's going to be better than what we've got at the moment, which at the moment is just ad hoc, basically, and relies on altruistic fixtures that don't make the top nations any money, so they won't put them on. Like on Saturday, or Sunday, I think it was, we had the RFU announcing that their autumn fixtures for Twickenham in November, and shock horror, they're playing New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, and then one other team which we understand is going to be an emerging nation but they can't all play let's say it's either going to be fiji or portugal or japan or samoa or tonga when are all these games going to happen like so that's well that's the last time november 24 will be the last time twickenham hosts a november series like yeah, that yeah, because yeah. in 20 from oh well, no 25 25 post 25 lines but they'll have to rotate though. some of the best players because of the player but welfare from, from 26 we'll be into this nation's nation's league and and what world rugby say is that the crossover fixtures, i.e. Samoa, Georgia, Portugal, Tonga, to play the Tier 1 Nations will happen in a Lions year. So Lions summer and Lions November, and then the World Cup warm-ups. Oh, I'd be surprised to see the RFU accepting a November series after a Lions tour, yeah. where it's England v Georgia, Portugal, and, and Samoa. Samoa. I would just like to focus on what those developing nations have brought to the tournament rather than just the final scores, because I think they've given a lot of people a lot of joy. And can I just add one more point here, which is leaning back towards the, the more established nations, and particularly England, is that they're proving this whole thing about four-year cycles and it taking a long time to groove something that actually works to be a whole load of hooey. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't need to be that complicated. It doesn't need to take that long. Attack doesn't need five, six, seven, eight years to groove. Like these players, some quite a few of them in these emerging countries play together in club size, which obviously helps, but quite a lot of them don't as well. They're playing around the Prodi Dur in France, quite a few of them from the Portuguese side, certainly, and they're scattered around the world in other places, but they make it work. It comes together. They're not throwing the ball on the floor like England are doing. I think we get parroted this story that it needs to take a, a huge long time to groove something that's usable, and it's just not true. So there you go. Thanks. Thank you to Chile, Portugal and all the other lads for showing us that you can just do it. Yeah, that was one of my takeaways watching the Portugal-Fiji game, actually, of just how they approach the game. If you then compare that with, say, a team like England, for example, and also your point, Alex, on the disparity between, say, Italy and Scotland, for example, and we've seen on the top teams has been one of my takeaways, particularly over the last weekend. I was in Lyon for the France-Italy game and knew that it was very unlikely that Italy would get a victory, but was thinking, well, it was close in the Six Nations. Maybe they can push them. They got blown away and was in Paris as well for the Ireland-Scotland game. And again, was thinking it's unlikely Scotland do what they need to do here to reach a quarterfinal. But let's hope it's a really exciting match. And then after about 90 seconds, you know it's going to be one-way traffic. So I think that has been an interesting element, actually, of the pool stages of how all of a sudden, after the Six Nations and it looked like there, there maybe wasn't a huge amount of gap, it seems like there's been a, a pretty big one from the evidence of those games anyway. But we'll get on to all of that to confirm the quarterfinal lineup. So on Saturday, Wales against Argentina, 4pm kickoff UK time in Marseille. Then it's Ireland against New Zealand in Paris at 8pm. On Sunday, England-Fiji at 4 in Marseille. And then the Paris game, France against South Africa at 8 p.m. So coming up on today's podcast, I spoke with Mark Palmer and Peter O'Reilly following the match in Paris between Ireland and Scotland to get both of their perspectives. Alex and Will were in Lille to watch England limp past Samoa. We'll chat about that. And Elgin Olderman was at Wales versus Georgia and the Argentina-Japan match. So I've caught up with him following those matches and to preview Wales's quarterfinal. And of course, we'll name our God or Goddess of the week as well. But starting with the debrief from the Stade de France, I spoke with Mark Palmer. But first up, Peter O'Reilly. Well, Peter, Ireland 36... Scotland 14. We're sat here in the press tribune at the Stade de France. All the fans have gone. The lawnmowers are out. It's settled down 
a little bit. I had an Irish friend that messaged me in the first half of that game that said, Ireland are going to win the World Cup. Was that the statement performance, do you think, that is going to have this Irish public starting to believe, really starting to hope? I know they've been hoping before, but what do you think? Yeah, I think it, it sends out a message about Ireland's capabilities. It's funny, you know, we spent the whole week talking about permutations and about what Scotland needed to go through. And the more you talked about that sort of thing, the more it seemed to be conceivable. Um, but pro- obviously not to the Ireland players, though. Um, I think there was never a danger that they weren't going to deliver a performance. Number one, because it was Peter O'Malley's 100th cap, and that seemed to, to mean a lot. Like that was, a, that was unfortunate for Scotland, I thought. They were unfortunate, obviously, with injuries as well to lose their captain. But Ireland looked like a team on a mission. As you know from being here as well, the, the actual occasion and the number of Ireland fans here, that's a part of the whole story, isn't it? You that, know. that was exactly what I was going to ask you about. And that we saw it in the South Africa game. And again, I turned up today at the Stade de France and I looked around and I thought, it feels 70% Ireland. And we had zombie play at the end again, and I watched all the Irish players almost just watching the stands, soaking it in. It it, it feels like something is building here, and I know it's no guarantee, and we'll get on to the quarterfinal they're going to face, but it, it feels like there's something happening. Yeah, I mean, there was talk about 50,000 Ireland supporters coming along today, and it, James Lowe said that in the, the presser before the game. It sounded like somebody was just kind of plucking figures, but then you turned up and you saw the amount of green that was here and you were looking around trying to see I mean green does stand out more than dark blue admittedly (laughs) but you were I mean to me it looked like there was kind of seven to one maybe yeah agree Ireland fans to to Scottish fans and Farrell Andy Farrell has very cleverly sort of played on this he's talked about the sort of understanding the fact that these people haven't come just to spectate they're participating they're sensing when Ireland need them if you like but he's also talking about supporters at home and uh that all helps to build a momentum you know, that affects the team. Is that different for this Ireland team, really quickly? You've covered them before. Does it feel different? Um, well, I, I remember a game in the Millennium Stadium, as it was then in 2015, when, when Ireland did a bit of a number on France. Mm. And uh, it was even, even noisier because the roof was closed. So, you know, we have a bit of, bit of a track record for, for, you know, we're event junkies. Uh, but there's, there's a different feeling in terms of what can be... Like, I, I felt... I thought today for the first time, and this sounds very presumptuous now, but I, could, I started imagining what would it be like if Ireland ended up playing France in the Stade de France at a French World Cup and there were more Ireland supporters here than French supporters. And that now, having been here tonight, doesn't seem impossible. Yeah, and to come to your defence there as well, because people listening that will think, hang on a minute, you've got the All Blacks next week. I can understand your thinking there from having been here. It d- it, it is quite something to watch this Ireland team play in front of these fans at the moment at this World Cup and, and the feeling and momentum behind them. We will get on to that quarterfinal. As sure. for, the, for the game tonight, a try after 90 seconds, a brilliant start, a punch to the gut of the Scots. Were you surprised by the Ireland performance or is a reflection of the brilliance of this team that Andy Farrell is coaching is you're almost not surprised by it. You know that they are capable of these sorts of performances. We went, went on tour with them in New Zealand last year and, and, and they, were, they went one down in Eden Park and, and they, you know, they, they, won, they won the series 2-1 and they did it playing rugby that you would kind of associate with previous all-black teams in terms of innovation and attack, but also you know, that edge that they bring uh, in defence. So... Yeah, it's, it stops surprising you, but I suppose what's interesting is what Andy Farrell just said at his press conference, what, you know, that they don't think that they've played their best rugby yet, that they feel there's more in them. I think mentally they're sharper than, I think I've said that to you before, than any Irish team that I've seen before. So that, that feeds into that sense of expectation, and also it feeds into that belief that if things go against us, if something bad happens, say, in the quarterfinal, that, we, that will bring the best out in us, which is incredibly empowering, I would imagine. What do you think, if any, are the weaknesses of this island team? Because I watch it as a neutral, and I was here for the South Africa game, and I watched them go toe-to-toe physically with the box. I watched them tonight. Their defence is good. We know what they can do in attack. Their discipline was very good. Their set piece is good. And I kind of look at it, and I think, if you're an opposition team, how do you, how do you get at this island team? What are the weaknesses, or is there nothing obvious that springs to mind well you take out their first choice 
front row and you take out their out half I'm being slightly facetious here yeah no there are there are aren't really any uh, any apparent weaknesses and I think they've you know I think it was interesting that the line out was clearly a weakness against South Africa and Farrell for all his sort of uh, bonhomie and this idea that he's uh, he's kind of avuncular almost he showed a ruthless side there you know James Ryan who's seen as being the next Ireland captain after Sexton retires he's dropped to the bench people assumed that when when we heard Ian Henderson was coming in it was because Ryan was injured no he wasn't he was on the bench Dan Sheehan coming back in was massive not just for what he offers as a as a carrier but also because He's so much harder for opposition lineouts to defend against because of just the, the nature of his delivery, that snappy delivery. So once Ireland are, once their lineout is cooking, once they, you know, there was a, there was a couple of times in, in the, that first half when they had a lineout in Scotland's, uh, in Scotland's half, and you think, I wonder what they've got up their sleeve here now, and I wonder what Scotland feel about that. You know, uh, how, you know, are they, are they, do they feel daunted by the the prospects here? The All Blacks, I suppose, when you're looking at the draw, you're. De- rather play them than play the French at home it's always going to be a really horrible game whoever you end up playing how important do you think it is of a lot of the players in this Ireland team and their recent history against the All Blacks psychologically preparing for that game it's hugely important because I mean it depends how far, how far back you want to go so you go back to 2016 and Ireland win in Chicago a couple of weeks later or maybe a month later New Zealand sort of take their revenge in Dublin with a, a really physical, uh, quite aggressive victory. Ireland have another win in 2018, in November 2018 in Dublin. New Zealand take their revenge at the quarterfinal. At that quarterfinal in, in Tokyo, 46-14, it's Ireland's biggest ever World Cup defeat. And I would say that while Ireland always, like they've been saying, that we don't look at previous World Cups and we're always forward-looking, etc., etc. You know, that gives Ireland now have, you know, that both sides will be claiming that they have vengeance in mind because of the, the series win last year. But that, that World Cup not turning up at a quarter-final has not the first time it had happened to Ireland. So they've got, you know, this idea that maybe that we can finally win a, a knockout game uh, at a World Cup. So... I would say that both teams will be talking about vengeance, but I just I think Ireland have momentum. Uh, they, they played a couple of big games fairly close together, whereas New Zealand haven't played a big game since the start of the tournament. And I, I believe that Ireland have more shots in terms of they can win a slugfest and they can win if it's kind of quick and fast and, and attacking as well. So uh, they'll be feeling good about it they'll be they'll be suitably respectful of the all blacks it is the all blacks and they know that joe schmitz you know he's in he's in the uh, their coaching team and he knows so much about them but they'll uh, they will see it as a challenge definitely it's going to be good isn't it this place next weekend for that game is going to be brilliant are we really going to have a week of build-up talking about all oh, ireland quarterfinals getting out i mean they're the number one team in the world what was tonight they're 17th victory in a row they've beaten all the best teams in the world is that still going to be the the narrative this week well i actually got it out of the way in today's in today's paper because uh ireland decided that they were going to look at this game as a knockout game that it was a last 16 game but yeah you know there's going to be there are going to be questions about previous world cups if you look at say the original five nations and then the four rugby championship teams ireland are the only team that had never played in a rugby world cup final and uh it's something that gets mentioned a lot. We've had loads of uh, loads of disappointments. People talk about the, you know, the the Gordon Hamilton try in 1991 and all that. But we were massive underdogs for those games. But once you get into 2011 against Wales at Wellington, like mm. that was amazing. We just Ireland didn't turn up that day. Uh, they didn't turn up in Tokyo four years ago as well. So you feel this team is different, though, don't you? Yeah, like I like I, I keep saying, it's it's. Uh, it's it's the mental strength that that uh, you know that separates them from previous teams. But I also think that, and it was it was fascinating to read Sam Warburton in the paper today. He he pointed out that what won the game against South Africa was Ireland's defence. I mean, he he name checked Simon Easterby. He doesn't get mentioned that often. He's the defence coach. It's always about Farrell. It's about Paul O'Connell, Mike Cat, yeah, Mike Cat. But you know, I think the winning of that game wasn't so much. James Lowe going over after 60 odd seconds it was when Scotland came back and they you know they were Scotland were in in Ireland's third of the pitch for it seemed like about 10 minutes and the longer their attack went on 
the more it seemed like their belief was draining and Ireland's self-belief was growing. And that, that really was the winning of the game. I mean, everything else, that was the launch pad for everything. And I think when you have, you know, defence is what defines a team or what keeps them together. And I think uh, that's really what won the game. Even though Ireland scored six tries, I think it was their defence really would set it up. Well, Peter, we'll speak to you next weekend. I look forward to it, Alfie. Yeah, looking forward to it. Mark Palmer, well, I suppose... There are two sides to every coin. There are two stories from every game. And up next, I'll chat to Mark Palmer and get the Scotland reaction. Well, Mark, we knew facing this Ireland team it could be bad. Did you think it would be that bad for Scotland? No, uh, maybe it was slightly optimistic of me. But of all the scenarios that we've been crunching through before this game and the various permutations of the maths and whatnot... I don't think many people expected such a, a comfortable, resounding either success or, you know, more accurately for, Sco- for Scotland to perform so poorly and really bring nothing until it was far too late. So, yes, it was a, a monumentally disappointing evening. <laughs> a try after 90 seconds, early injuries as well to Blair Kinghorn and Jamie Ritchie. It felt very early on, and we were sitting really close to each other in the press box. It felt early on that it wasn't going to be their night, didn't it? It did, although ironically, if that's the right word, it was probably those 20 minutes you know, after the first minute where Scotland actually did apply some pressure. But again, a big feeling there was everything that they talked about during the week was you have to capitalise on chances. There might be two or three that pop up in the course of the 80 minutes. They had those two or three in that spell, banged on the door for ages, were repelled quite comprehensively by Ireland. And you kind of felt at that point that there's no way through here. And Ireland are so clinical in both 22s, so good at what they're doing. They were just miles ahead of Scotland in every key area. What have they said in the post-match press conference about the decision to kick to the corner? First three penalties, game at 5-0, they go to the corner, they don't get any points out of it. Was that always the plan? It it seems to have been, and and, and the the explanation for that was they were always going to need to score tries. And and, and they they, they say that that, that's evidenced by what then happened in terms of Ireland scoring tries of their own. So... There, there hasn't been too much recrimination on that front, although you know it, it might have been a way to at least get the scoreboard moving in Scotland's favour in a way that they just didn't manage all night. How does Scotland reflect on this World Cup? It's an odd one. It's almost been a bit of a non-event of a campaign, mm. albeit you know it's taken you know six or seven weeks for us to get to the point where we probably everyone expected to be, and that's South Africa and Ireland going through, Scotland going home. The disappointment is they didn't perform at anything like their true level against either of the big opponents, South Africa in the first game, and then here they've, they've lost both of those games very comfortably, and it feels like they're going home without really sort of delivering on the potential that we thought they had. Is that a reflection of? where this Scotland side are and I don't mean it to sound as mean as as it does sound but almost Scotland are the fifth best team in the world it's where they are in the rankings we all know if they're on the other side of the draw they'd be coming through as pool winners but you put them on in a pool with Ireland and South Africa and they're simply not able to match those two sides I think so and you know as we said again from the start it's two two sides who you could probably hand pick in terms of the sort of rugby kryptonite they bring to Scottish eyes the um you know, that, that direct, physical, relentless style. And, you know, so you saw with a number of the tries tonight again that that close quarters power that Ireland and South Africa bring, Scotland just don't have an answer to it at this stage. It's long been a problem. There have been improvements. But, you know, on the biggest occasions, the biggest nights like this, it's still, it's still a shortcoming. And is there concerns for Scotland of where they go from here? This kind of generation of players, some of them might not be here at the next World Cup. If they are, they're four years older. Concerns about the talent coming through the pipeline? Absolutely. I think probably less the former and more the latter, or whichever way around that was. That they, <laughs> they, they, you know, they won't lose too many of this group. There's still guys that are kind of mid, who will be mid to late 20s at that point or early 30s. But the pipeline is pretty much non-existent thereafter. The, the, the under 20 results have fallen off a cliff in the last three or four years. Gregor himself has said repeatedly that a lot more needs to be done there. And, you know, I can only envisage that we're going to see yet more of what we have in the last number of years, which is kind of, you know, talent importation to plug gaps that, you know, of, of a failing system. So, you know, at that level, guys are being set up to fail. And, and I think it's only going to, you know, become more apparent at a senior level over the next World Cup cycle. And how much criticism do you think is going to come Gregor Townsend's way after this World Cup? I'm not sure. I think in a lot of eyes, there'll be a bit of a pass afforded him because of the draw. I think, you know, it's not like last time where they really should have come out of that pool, uh, containing Japan and Ireland. There'll be criticism over the the kind of non-performances against South Africa and and, and Ireland. But I think in the main, you know, the simple fact is that he signed a new three-year contract just before the tournament. So he's he's under lock and key until after the 26 Six Nations. This World Cup campaign doesn't change that at all? 
I'm not convinced it does. I think there, there are enough kind of caveats, big caveats in the shape of that draw for him to be able to say, look, we were, you know, we were always on a hiding to nothing uh, despite all the big talk this week. My own sense, though, is, again, that they will definitely feel they've underperformed and that the growth that they've seen over the last 12 to 18 months just hasn't been reflected on the biggest stage. And just finally then, Marcus, it's a very difficult question to answer when we're sat in the Stade de France and Scotland are heading home and as you say, haven't performed as in the way they would have wanted to, particularly against Ireland and South Africa. But given the fact that they have clearly come up short against those two sides, is this a Scotland team you think that are capable of bridging that gap? I think it's very, very difficult. I mean, Gregor's just come away with a line down there that he thinks Ireland could dominate world rugby for the next five to ten years. Yeah, I heard and, that. You know, and it's not only Ireland, it's South Africa, it's France. I, I think, you know, a, a lot of the time in Scotland we're guilty of saying, oh, we're improving, we've done this, we've done that, as if the rest of the, the competition are standing still. It's simply not the case. I mean, you've already got ground to make up. I just don't see that there, you know, anything structurally that, that can make that happen. That reminds me, actually, as well, of what's happened for this World Cup between the Six Nations and now, thinking back as well also to Italy and, and kind of what we've seen from them, and Scotland as well, we're, seem to be closer to Ireland in the Six Nations Italy seems to be closer to everyone in the Six Nations and now you look at that top four in the world there seems to be a massive gap between everyone else there does and you know it's very hard to explain in the here and now but basically I think Scotland in, in, the, in the two biggest tests here have come up so well short and have done everything that they said they couldn't do in those games you know not taking chances allowing themselves to be turned over in their own 22 so many kind of, you know, it, it, the recipe was there um, for them to avoid these scenarios and they've just kind of fallen into every trap that was left for them. And the physical side as well, isn't it? It yeah. is, a, is a massive thing. I mean, yeah. we were both, at, we were obviously here tonight and we were both at the South Africa game as well. And tonight, you, you mentioned it, Scotland had their opportunities, they had their phases in the 22 and it just looked like such hard work to yeah. get any sort of, forward momentum and I think you know a lot of teams will find that like going up against the Irish defence and have found that that you know the number one team in the world for, for a reason but it's a repeat failing of that Scottish system and, and if anything it, you know the, the the conditioning of the teams and, and, and the forward power of the teams below the senior side is actually worse and getting worse so it's been identified as a problem area but I don't think we're anywhere anywhere closer to addressing it it's all a little bit downbeat isn't it, it is. unfortunately Mark <laughs> I feel bad as well I was thinking actually it kind of I feel like the the ruck now almost becomes like the X factor. Like you go home now. We don't. We don't hear from you next week. A blessing for all. <laughs> I'm not so sure, Mark. It's been a pleasure. It is. It was always going to be brutal for one team, and we suspected that it would be Scotland. And unfortunately, they are heading home. But as always, it's been awesome to have you on the ruck. Awesome to speak to you out here in France. We'll have you on again. I'm sure the Six Nations will come round before we know it. But for now, yeah, heading home, licking their wounds a little bit. Good man. Thank you. Well, good to chat to Mark and to Peter after that match at the Stade de France. Ireland against the All Blacks. That is going to be one heck of a quarterfinal. Will, Alex, you were at England, if we turn our attention to, to Lille, their game against Samoa. What was it like in stadium? It was fascinating, actually, being at the Stade de France because as they often do for the kickoffs, is they put it on on the big screen in the stadium. And you can imagine with... A load of Irish and Scotland fans, the noise that was being generated towards the final stages when it looked like England might lose was hilarious. And also as an Englishman, I was thinking, oh, please don't let this happen. This would just be unbearable. With the Irish, with the Irish singing Samoa, Samoa. <laughs> I, got, I got a friend who was in, uh, who was in the stand uh, at the game uh, in Lille and he, he said to me there were England fans. There were England fans chanting Allé les Bleus at, at Samoa. I don't know, like... I mean, yeah, Will's gagged there about zombie. Like, there's a there's a an unbridled joy about following Ireland at the moment, and about the way they play their rugby. It's free, it's fluid, it's accurate, it's 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 everything that you, you know. It's, it, I was on a, a Times Radio thing the other the other week, the other day, and Stig Abel asked asked us if we had if we could pay to go to one quarter final, which would it be? And without a doubt, I'd said Ireland, New Zealand, because of the way that those two teams, you know, as a I think France are wonderful to watch, but as a game. We were in the in the sort of basement tunnel area of of the stadium in Lille, which had a stinky sewage pipe flowing through it. Um, there were some all... jokes that England had stunk out yeah, the place that very, were yeah. not very funny. I, <laughs> I won't repeat them. Um, you know, having just having watched that, and you know, England fans were sort of up for it pre-match, and then it was really quiet. And you know, as I said about 
there's just such a contrast between following England at the moment and following Ireland and how England play and how Ireland play. And it, it, bear in mind, like we're watching that on the screen at, at the stadium, having just watched England fumbling around, literally throwing past really slow ball. Like was it forty thirty seven percent of of England's thirty nine percent thirty nine percent of England's yeah. balls over six seconds, and their average ruck speed was six point one seconds. There you go. And so, across the whole tournament, they're the second slowest team among the whole twenty, only quicker than Wales. So that allows. They're not winning that battle, so that allow, that then allows the Samoan lads to just to get into position to to blitz England basically. So they come charging through, and England has to chuck it like panicky, chucking the ball on the floor, getting it like half intercepted, fumbling it, and and it's just so far away from watching watching Ireland, and the whole experience is is so different. And I think the England fans had a great time in Lille. There's a lovely town square and city square, and loads of beers being drunk and a lot of fun being had don't get me wrong but the actual rugby experience at the moment could not be more different I think also there's something in that there's this feels to be a, a much more natural and genuine connection between the Irish support and their team and their coaching staff and their players I was with the the Irish guys because went over to tour where their base is for a day or two last week and just did some of their media stuff and um that they, they, they've never been the most like forward uh, country with giving access to players and stuff like that but they've got an incredibly engaging head coach in Andy Farrell and you see some of the quotes after the game where they've lined up a match against New Zealand and he's just going this is living boys yeah. in a press conference and you think I pray pray for an engaging head coach like that to cover it's just and like the, we see it for years in the European Cup with the Munster fans who would sell their house to go and travel to a game and, and follow it and like I remember years gone by where um, they turn up in their droves at, at, at games like against Harlequins at the Stoop. They basically took over. And and I remember sitting in the stands when I was a teenager and one bloke turning to me and going, welcome to Terman Park, boy, and stuff like that. Like, they love it. And it just looks amazing. And the zombie stuff is incredible. And then this is where I feel a bit slightly depressed and maybe I'm, it's, I don't know, Lots of our listeners will go, oh, lucky you, you're at the World Cup. But Yeah, I was going to say that. There probably <laughs> well, no, won't be much sympathy here. Of course not, no. But you just think, like I've, I've, the only game I've watched live that isn't an England game was Wales-Portugal, which was fantastic. And I do have this sense that the, sort of, the World Cup's happening kind of other places and out there and not, not where I am. Um, and that, maybe that will change over the weekend. But it just feels like there's such a contrast in the sort of dirge that we get with England and the joy that is happening at other places that's all I that's all I was going to say is part of the frustration with England well I was kind of looking at it I was thinking okay start of the World Cup huge amount of negativity but they get a good win against Argentina in testing circumstances follow it up with a pretty underwhelming performance against Japan they then go in against Chile they do what we all expect them to do but equally they kind of put points on the board they get the job done they back it up with an underwhelming performance against Samoa, just when you feel like they could start building momentum. And to a degree, they have built momentum just by the fact that they've won four games. But do you feel like they're not capitalising on the platform that you feel they're giving themselves? Yeah, they don't seem to have improved. Like We spoke to a lot of them after the game against Samoa, and a lot of the conversations were about drawing a line in the sand after the Fiji defeat at Twickenham, um, which is a pretty galling experience. And you sort of think, well, it sounds like they've had lots of honest conversations, but they haven't actually improved that much. And the, the Argentina game, we gave them full credit because it was a brilliant win with 14 men. And they they like to say that they found a way to win all these games, which is to their credit. And they're four from four. And I wrote particularly that they could get knocked out in the pool stage, which Steve Borthwick referenced after the game and said, everyone's written us off. And this is a team, I told you they were going to be ready on September the 9th for Argentina, and they were. I told you they'd get through to the quarterfinals, and we have. And to some extent, you say fair cop, but also you say this should be a higher ceiling for an England team with the players that they've got available and the experience they've got available, the most experienced team they've ever had to pick from to deliver more than they're delivering now. And there may be clunkiness after a week or so off, but they're showing things that other experienced teams with other top players are not showing. It's just difficult to watch, essentially. And if they get knocked out by Fiji, there'll be a lot of people who just says, well, they had their comeuppance, essentially. And I mean, like I spent some time, as I was saying, with the Irish guys last week, and they're absolutely tearing their hair out that England 
are quite likely to make a semi-final and Ireland have got to beat the All Blacks to get through. <laughs> they, Having also had to beat Scotland and South Africa. Yeah, yeah. And we've spoken about this a lot and you read out the quarterfinals there, Alfie, and I'm just looking at it as a neutral and going, what an amazing weekend. That's going to be sensational. And it's not England's fault that the draw was lopsided and all that, but it would be incredible, really, on paper, if England don't make the semi-finals. But Let, they're not very good. It's just a funny old thing, isn't it? Everyone's been very down on the way in which England approach games. But you look at the World Cup from this point going forward this weekend and if they are to get themselves to a semi-final, you can't see any other way they have to approach it, do you? Other than no. making it ugly. Yeah, I, I think you're, t- you're spot on, Alfie. Um, England shouldn't apologise this week for making it one of the worst games you've ever seen. Like... <laughs> That's the way they're going to win the game. Kick a lot, kick in behind and pressurise feed. You don't, for the love of God, give them space. I mean, you saw Habosi coming off his wing and things like that last night against the Portuguese. And you think, wow, that is some dangerous counter-attack. So they've got to chase well. And people like Tom Curry and Bernal, Johnny May, if he plays, would be key parts to that. But lots of lineouts. The Fiji lineouts not brilliant. Um, their scrum is actually excellent. They've got high 90%. Um, success rate in in the front row, Matavesi, Tangi, who's I think one of my new favourite players. He's listed down as being 130 kilos, and yeah. I, like I don't want to be rude to the bloke, but he's definitely heavier than that. But what a bloke! Like the the tap and go he did the other week, which un, unfairly the French TV directors slowed down, which meant um, he looked a little bit like a a jelly on a piece of table, which is great unfair. footage. Right? Great footage, but they've got a great scrum. And they've got Aroni Maui, who Saracens fans know and love from the Prem um, at Loosehead. So I don't think England can go for them in the in the tight five, but they could get some of the line out. But I think that they need to make it a pig of a game. And and Borthwick said that to his players, the Leicester players, when they played Saracens in the Prem final, they won. He essentially was like, I don't care if this is the most boring game that anyone's ever watched. We will be in the game with five minutes to go and we will win it. And I think that's the plan for this week. It but, should be. But we need we need to clarify the difference here like you can win a game of rugby infinite different ways and I would have no problem if, if England as Courtney said when we were in the 2k last week England's DNA makes us hard to beat strong defensive team intelligent kicking game and then try and, and and secure points through pressure off the back of that whether that's penalties drop goals or scoring tries that's perfect like I don't I don't worry I'm not worried about England's style necessarily it's about the execution of that style that is the problem. And that's the thing that, that that bothers me about England. It's not how they play, it's how accurately they, they try and do what they do. And I mentioned it earlier in the pod as well, but what does Fiji's defeat to Portugal do to the build-up this week? Before that, had they beaten Portugal fairly comfortably like many people possibly expected them to do, I think Fiji would have gone in as favourites. Are England now favourites? What does it do to, to that dynamic of the build-up? By any by any standard, and like this is not me being all rude to the emerging nations and all that. England should always beat Fiji at rugby, at fifteen aside World Cup rugby. But they didn't recently, and they didn't deserve to. And you wouldn't be surprised if they lost. And actually, I think if we widen it, you probably say for every quarter final here, you could see any result, which is amazing, isn't it? The quarterfinals are going to be great, which is what we always knew. I think we will be having a discussion next week ahead of the semifinals of, boy, oh boy, we could be back to some really one-sided scores. The one thing I'm fascinated with, particularly with Ireland, like we're recording this early in the week, we'll see what happens with their injuries. But they're a country that has never gone through this next stage. They've never had their player pool tested like Wales get tested because Wales have made semifinals and run out of bodies. And they're running out of bodies again this time. They've lost Valatel. like Matera has gone for Argentina, Ireland look like they possibly could be without Hansen, Lowe. They've got other injuries, Keith Earls possibly. That's going to be their big test is they've got a decent player pool, but is it good enough to keep winning games when you don't have your favourite team out? Yeah, I just think on, on what we expect from Fiji is we we just don't know, do we? And that that is... That's part of the fun. That's part of the fun. Like how, how like I, had a, I had a sense that Italy, having been monstered by the All Blacks, there was no way back for them and they would be monstered again by France. They're a team that if, if they can get the ball, they get a quick ball and get their runners on the ball early, 
catch defenses on uh, unsettled they can cause you damage they, they've shown that but mentally they were they were just gone i don't know how fiji re- react to these situations because they've never really been in it i mean yeah i was here in 07 when they made that that quarter final it was totally different they pulled wales's pants down in nantes came down here on top of the world loving life went and took took on the box and gave him a real scare in the quarter final here it's been it's totally different and they, you know, they 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 started big, and they've they've rather tripped up. And do they have a tournament mentality? Do they have? They got players who play in the biggest competitions. Does the fact they're playing England immediately focus their minds again? A bit like what we were saying earlier. Suddenly, this is a big test again. So I went to the Fijian team hotel down in Bordeaux the other day, and they have a like lots of teams. You go and see them at in a gym or whatever, and they've got these messages up on the wall. And the three for Fiji are fitness, discipline play like Fijians but the play like Fijians thing I think that's something that they've just got to tap into and Simon Rao Louis the head coach will tap into and actually in some ways it's maybe for Fiji the challenge of stripping back all the kind of cloudiness of game plans and stuff and just reconnecting back to what they're about and maybe tapping into some of that spirituality stuff and the the reason why they're here and just go and play because if they can go and play the way they can, they will beat England. Like they, they will tear them apart. But they need to believe in it a bit more. Maybe what I would say too is that maybe more so than a fair few other sports, but rugby is a sport where sometimes wanting it more and yeah. believing in it more matters. Yeah, you saw that South Africa, the last World Cup. It helps that they had a lot of big blokes and a massive scrum. Obviously, they had a purpose. But the, this higher purpose thing, yeah. and I would say that. Sometimes when it's a flip of a coin in games, you look at, well, who who would it mean more to to get through here? And in that sense, you'd say Fiji, wouldn't you? So we'll see. It's going to be bloody fascinating. It's going to be yeah. amazing. Yeah. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. I think, you know, I know you're right that the, the games in Marseille on paper aren't the, the blockbuster games, but I think they're still fascinating in their own right. And also what I would say as well, for both of you being down in Marseille, we were all there for the opening weekend. I think as a city... It's one of the best ones I've been to in terms of hosting the the matches when you look at having four There's different... There's going to be a lot of hot people around here. It's going to be 26 degrees all week. We're going to have another slippery ball probably on Saturday and Sunday. Although the, and the games are early in the day. They're the five o'clock games, as you read out earlier, Alfie, not the eight o'clock games, UK time, up in Paris. And <laughs> the old port is going to be absolutely packed with <laughs> Welsh and English, yeah. Argentinians... Maybe some Fijians, let's hope. I was here, so that, that uh, quarterfinal weekend in 2007, I was here when England beat, uh, beat Australia at the velodrome uh, in that day where... The old velodrome. The old, the old velodrome where the day that Andrew Sheridan had the Wallabies, what, one, of, one of the days when Andrew Sheridan had the Wallabies pack on, on toast and that England team who'd, who'd been pumped 36-0 at the start of the tournament was suddenly in a semi-final and then everyone gathered round, round the old port to watch the All Blacks play France in Cardiff in, the, in that night semi-final and you had thousands of people celebrating down by the port as France beat the All Blacks. It was one of the, the most extraordinary World Cup memories, really, of, of two, two, two results that nobody sort of foresaw. And, it, you know, and that, is, that, that is what's possible this weekend. And, and as you said, the blockbusters might be in Marseille, but in, in Paris, sorry, but all, every game is even. Every game's even. Well, that tees it up. Pretty perfectly, really. Should be a great weekend. Next up on the pod, we're going to turn our attention to Wales. They didn't struggle quite to the degree England did, although it was close at one stage against Georgia, but they eventually won 43-19. They'll play Argentina in the quarterfinal after the Pumas defeated Japan on Sunday. Elgin Alderman was our man at both matches, so I caught up with him following that Pumas victory. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So, Elgin, you join us outside the stadium in Nantes where you watched Wales win yesterday. You've just watched Argentina beat Japan. So those two sides, Wales and Argentina, will face each other in the quarterfinals of the Rugby World Cup. First of all, on the second of those games, Argentina against Japan, it was winner takes all. It was essentially a knockout game. Did it have that sort of feel to it? Not at all. You think of knockout games as being quite cagey affairs and... This was terrifically exciting. It was a bit of a riot throughout. You had two teams that have not been at their best thus far in the in, in the pool stages, going for that runner-up position behind England, knowing that Wales awaited in the quarterfinals. And you had mistakes on both sides, but also some great enterprising attacking play. You had Japan's lock running 60 metres down the wing and scoring a chip-and-chase try, probably the, the solo try of the tournament thus far. And you had a hat-trick from Argentina's Mateo Carreras. He'll be very familiar to viewers of the Gallagher Premiership from Newcastle Falcons. And yeah, he was just an absolute bundle of energy, handing off players, beating them on the outside. And the duel between him and Lewis Rees-Amit on Saturday will be quite something. So, no, not, not, not a cagey affair at all. Yeah, as for Argentina, they progress. Haven't been great this World Cup, perhaps displayed a little bit more of an attacking threat against Japan, certainly than we saw in their early pool games. What did you make of them in particular with the matchup with Wales in mind? They certainly haven't been as good as they should be on paper. Certainly their pack of forwards look like they could be a test for, for anyone in the world. Of course, Wales will have a change in their back row as well because Talupe Falatao has broken his arm. So there will be slightly different back row matchups. Argentina shouldn't have any fear for Wales. You know, Wales have played them so many times down the years and, and tends to come out on top. But but the thing about Argentina is when it does click, you know, we've seen when they beat New Zealand for the first time three years ago in that game during the pandemic and then beat them again in Christchurch last year. They do have performances where what you see on paper and all that power in their pack and, and skill out wide as well with Mateo Carrera, Santiago Carreras as well, Emiliano, uh, Emiliano Buffelli on the wing. When it all comes together, they are fearsome. It's just that it often doesn't come together and they often go on. They've been on long losing streaks over the past five years. They've lost 11 games in a row before, seven in a row before as well. So currently on on this form, Wales should have no fear. And you'd think that Wales might be able to, with their kicking and pressure game, cause the errors that Argentina are, are often wants to do. But as I say, with all those names that Argentina have on paper, if they click, then suddenly it's a, it's a different game altogether. Makes it quite a hard game to call, though, doesn't it? Because you're right, Argentina probably haven't exactly impressed at this World Cup. But within recent memory, they have some notable scalps. I think Wales will most likely go into it as favourites off the back of the pool stage. But it is a, it is a tricky fixture. It will be one of those weeks, the build-up, where both sides are competing to be regarded as the <laughs> underdog. Yeah, it's, uh, we're talking within an hour of the match having finished and already Michael Checker is on the record saying Argentina are the underdogs going into the game. Equally, Wales always love to portray themselves as the underdogs throughout this tournament, throughout the Warren Gatland era, really. They've often like to suggest that they are the ones with the backs against the wall, that they are the ones that aren't getting the credit they deserve. And we've already seen that during this World Cup. And yet, yes, they, they, Wales go into it with four wins from four, the historic 46 win over Australia. Certainly on form, you'd say that Wales were the favourites. And that is what Michael Checker mentioned. He said, you know, people are saying Wales are going to get to the semi-final. So you'll, you'll, have, you'll have two setups trying to fashion a situation in which People aren't expecting them to win. So we've got that to look forward to. Yeah, as for Wales, you mentioned the Talupe Falatau injury. How big a blow is that to them? He was one of those players that has been an ever-present throughout the pool stages. He came back from injury relatively recently. How big a blow is that ahead of the knockout game? It is a huge blow because, you know, against Australia, he was he was magisterial. He, he does things that other Wales back rowers simply cannot do in terms of his footwork, his ability to 
carry in tight channels, but also against Australia, we saw him running at brick walls, which isn't the type of carrying we, we necessarily see from him that often. He's also a tremendously skillful player with his ability to offload and also a line-out forward as well. So it leaves Wales with a bit of a headache as to as to how they make up their back row. It's fairly guaranteed that, assuming no further injury, Aaron Wainwright will move from blindside flanker to number eight. It's a position he's played quite a few times for Wales. He's actually played some of his best rugby for Wales at number eight. A, a shining example being the first summer series game against England uh, in Cardiff when, when he was superb that day with and without the ball. So he'll go in at number eight. And then the dilemma will be, do they go with Tommy Reffel at six and Jack Morgan at seven, a, a twin open side combination that both of them have been man of the match in the pool stages. Tommy Reffel was superb at the breakdown against Georgia and Jack Morgan's been superb in just about every facet of the game in the first three matches too. The other option will be the typical Gatland option that he that he tends to prefer having, which is a more traditional bruising number six. And then suddenly you're thinking of Dan Lydiot maybe for one of his horses for courses roles where his job is just to put big Argentinian men on the ground. Yeah, rather him than me if he does get that assignment of having to put Argentine forwards on, on the ground. Um, 19 points from a possible 20 then from Wales aside were kind of similar to England in a way weren't they coming into the World Cup and a fair bit of negativity not much expectation around them but they've done the job in the pool stages they've qualified as the top of the pool relatively comfortably how would you assess the way in which this Welsh team has progressed throughout the pool stage? Yes yeah, starting with Fiji you know, they were starting with the game that was regarded as, as the hardest. And there was this sense that if they came through that, then suddenly four wins from four was very possible because Wales are a team that do like to, to get, on a, get on a bit of a run, get some confidence in, and they grow from there. So once they got through that, that Fiji game with the bonus point as well, the four tries, then sneaking the bonus point again in the final play against Portugal after they'd made 12 changes, the Australia game, yes, people have been talking about how Australia are at their lowest ebb, but it is also worth considering that they reached that low ebb because of what Wales did to them and manhandled them and beat them so convincingly. They've got through, like you say, with 19 points out of 20. Australia, the only one in which they haven't got the bonus point, conversely, despite it being the best result. So when, when, when the first team, minus Faletau, and obviously there are a few other injury doubts, but when the, the, the first choice available team gets out against Argentina in Marseille on Saturday, you know, hopes will be high amongst Wales fans that we see the performance that we saw for 65 minutes against Fiji and 80 minutes against Australia. Should be an intriguing game, though, shouldn't it, Elgin? I mean, I look at it, Warren Gatland against Michael Checker, two vastly experienced coaches, two sides that you would say are relatively evenly matched as well. Should be a great occasion, in fact, in Marseille as well. It's been, I was there for the opening weekend and you look at the fan bases that are going to descend on it this weekend. Um, it should be quite an occasion. Absolutely. I was at Marseille for South Africa v Tonga and it is an excellent stadium. It's, I think it, the, the capacity is just under 60,000. There's been a sea of red Wales fans in every city we've been to. The Argentina presence here today was magnificent and loud and passionate as well. So I think Argentina might just win out on the on the, the noise level in the crowd, but there should be a, a, an even spread of, of red versus blue and white out there. The atmosphere around Marseille beforehand and after should be great as well. And yes, you've got two teams that will probably try and, you know, win it in the in, in the forwards to an extent with, with the that pressure and kicking game and, and tight play, but equally with the likes of Luis Rizama and Matteo Carreras out wide, there is the possibility that we could see some uh, some exciting scores as well. So, yeah, it's going to be very intriguing and we'll, we'll see how it goes when, when it gets the quarterfinal weekend underway on Saturday afternoon. Perfect, Elgin. We will catch up with you next weekend after that game, after events in Marseille. Uh, what's your plan for the week? Just head down to Marseille, are you, and, and soak up all the build-up as, as it goes throughout the week? Yes, Wales have popped back to their original base camp of Versailles almost immediately after the game. I, I've stayed down, stayed up in Nantes for the uh, for Argentina's game today and then it'll be down to Marseille for the start of the week and then, yep, just there for the whole week as we as we see what decisions Wales make regarding their squad. They will have to call someone up for Palatau. There are question marks over Gareth Anscombe, possibly 
Liam Williams took a whack to the knee as well. So there should be some news coming out of the camp early week. Same with Argentina with Pablo Matera. So yes, it's uh, yeah, knockout footy, as as Michael Checker would call it, is is finally here. Uh, looking forward to it. We'll catch up with Elgin next week following those quarterfinals. Next up on the ruck, we will return to the others and we'll finish the show with our God or Goddess of the Week. So good to chat to Elgin. That rounds off Wales, England, Scotland, Ireland on this week's pod. It means all we have to do before finishing Will Kelleher and Alex Lowe is name our God or Goddess of the week. Um, I've got one. Do either of you have a, a preference on who goes first? So honourable mention, before I do my actual one, for Mike Tadger, who, what a, what a boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The clearance kick that he made against Fiji was sensational, but he's not my God of the week. My actual God of the week is um, Theo McFarland, the Samoa. I suppose we should say back five forward because he yeah. has played lock and six at this tournament. And we know how good he is for Saracens. He he didn't qualify on age for being the breakthrough player of the year the first year he, he came through because he was 27 or something. But he was a basketball player in Samoa. Was over in He had a contract with the Dallas team in the MLR who never made it into the MLR in America. In order to get a contract in England, they needed a guarantee that he would be playing for Samoa because of work visa situation. Saracens took a punt on him on a short contract and said, well... We'll give him a few months and see. He did get a cap for Samoa. He then got his visa. And then what a signing. Yeah. <laughs> one of the best players in the league. And now one of the greatest players at this World Cup too. He was absolutely amazing against England. So, God of the week. All power to Theo McFarlane. I hope you see loads more of him next season with Saris. Yeah, that's a good shout. Um, and and, it, and I would, I'll echo the, the honourable mention to Mike Tazza, the, the Portuguese hooker. There was more than just that, that clearance kick from his own 22 there was a, a clever little dummy at one point and he almost threw one around the back yeah he? yeah I, I was great so he, he he was he was brilliant there's a there's a few Portuguese you you, you could pick but I'm going to go for the scrum half uh, Samuel Marquez he just was the live wire at the heart of everything they did kicked his goals and I just love that just the, the story of as I mentioned earlier from, from qualification through to beating Fiji yeah the Portuguese scrum half gets it for me well, I am also going to go Portugal. Just before that, though, we should mention, because a notification has just popped up on my phone here, that the French captain Antoine Dupont, update on him, has been cleared to resume training ahead of the Rugby World Cup quarterfinal. Uh, I know it's not the final yet, but for some reason it's giving me 1998 vibes of Ronaldo ahead of the final. Would he make it? Wouldn't he make it? What's going on? Um, maybe it's just because this tournament's also in France. I think that's maybe where the, <laughs> the the comparison ends. Have you two heard anything more than that? Because I've heard conflicting things of at one stage, they're going to be very confident that he would return for the quarterfinal. Others that actually it's probably going to be a semi-final. He's cleared to return to training. I guess we'll wait and see on, on whether he plays or not. I don't know. He's, he's sort of, it's such a hot, I don't I have no idea what they'll do, but he probably is going to play, I would say. Yeah, they kind of have to play him. Like they could be out by Sunday night, mm. so why wait for a semi? But it's it's obviously a player welfare thing. Like he has to be ready and has to be able to take contact. And probably the last team you want to come across when you've got a slightly sore cheekbone is the South Africans in their seven one eight nil bench. <laughs> yeah, I it'd be a, it'd be a fascinating balance for them to strike because his training has been limited. Um, he's been building himself up to this. To, to a return to full training, but yeah, I, I he's such a talent. I mean, far and away the best scrum half in the world, let alone the best player. That if he's anywhere close to his best, I think I think he plays. The one counter argument is that they seems amazing to say it, but they haven't shown they haven't missed him that much because they're such a unit of as a team. They know who they are and how they play. That they've moved on really smoothly. My I don't quite know if it's a fully formed theory, but. If if Dupont plays, and then let's say after fifteen minutes he has to go off injured, with with the same problem, or he realizes he can't do it, would that just be an enormous psychological blow to the French team and also the Stade de France crowd? And would that have a negative effect? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, potentially. I think also what it does it just that scenario that you've just laid out will would 
create some pretty uncomfortable and awkward questions for France unless they were to go through, but particularly if they were to lose under those circumstances. I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves. It's if, buts and maybes and, and we'll see how he pulls through. My God of the week, as I say, I'm sticking with Portugal. I'm going for Nicolas Martins, the flanker who... I think we mentioned Nuno Sousa Guedes. You've obviously gone for the scrum half, Alex, but he has been another one of those players who has come out of this World Cup with his stock risen an immeasurable amount. He has been absolutely sensational in that Portuguese pack. So he gets my nod. Uh, Gents, enjoy the build-up this week. Enjoy Marseille. Get the sunscreen out. Get your hats out. It sounds like you're going to need it, hopefully for what is going to be a brilliant weekend of rugby uh, and I'll be in Paris suffering through the quarterfinals of France against South Africa and Ireland against the All Blacks. Poor you. And Alfie, at this point, we should we should do a really nice segue until the final episode of How to Win the World Cup is out on Thursday, isn't it? Yep. So 2019, four years ago, we'll be hearing from Francois Lowe, who you had a chat with, Will. So we've covered every World Cup up until this point. There's been various different little nuggets from all of them of what goes into winning a World Cup. I think it's probably fair to say, Will, isn't it? It's painted a pretty diverse picture of, of what various teams needed in order yeah. to get over the line. There are a couple of nice stories from Francois Lowe. Um, it seems to be a theme of South African World Cups. So they end up going to Disneyland because... If you remember, Alex was there last time uh, for the World Cup final week. Um, South Africa was staying in Disneyland, and so he told some stories about that, and also having to kill Bambi and beating Japan in Japan. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and listen out for it. But there's a funny story about we all remember the Japanese being amazing hosts, but when you start playing them in the World Cup quarterfinal, they the things just start not happening very well. And <laughs> there's a good story in there about the Wi-Fi codes at the hotel, which you you should all. Um, listen out for so yeah Thursday morning for that it's been quite a fun series and yeah I hope you've all enjoyed it yeah so Thursday that's out all the rest of the episodes if you've missed any of them are on the ruck feed from wherever you get your podcast from make sure you are subscribed that you follow and also leave us a review but we'll be back next Monday to reflect on those quarterfinals can't wait for it boys enjoy the week we'll see you next time here's Alfie 